morning. My name is Susan Coulter, and I've been a member here at Windsor Road for 15 years. And recently, Randy asked me to tell my faith story about giving initiative, or taking initiative, I should say. And obviously, I said yes, because I'm here. Well, six years ago, um, well, for the past six years, I should say, I have been legally blind. I have a genetic disorder that has robbed me of my central vision, leaving me to rely primarily or exclusively on my peripheral vision for getting around, for reading, for basically seeing. Now, the definition of legal blindness is um, the vision in your best eye being at 2200 or worse, and that is with corrective lenses. My vision, as it stands right now, is somewhere in the vicinity of 20. 400. So it's really not very good. Um, on October 3rd, 2007, I walked into the DMV, a um, proud owner of a driver's license, and I left what felt like a day later, um, the not-so-proud owner of an Illinois state ID. Now, this was very difficult for me because it meant giving up part of my independence, no more hopping in the car to run to the store for a quick trip. And I had to plan, really plan, more than I ever had in my life, everything I did. If there was a place I had to go, I didn't just plan on being there. I had to plan how I was going to get there. But I managed, God provided, and all was well. Well, in the following March in 2008, I went to the eye doctor and was finally declared officially legally blind. And I should have been prepared for this. I'd known for 10 years this day was coming. But of course, I put it off and I didn't think about it because 10 years seemed like a long time to wait. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I fell into a very dark place. And I wallowed a lot. Well, a girl that I worked with, her father, who had been blind, totally blind since birth, um, also worked at the U of I in disability services for those who are blind or visually impaired. And she suggested I talk to him, that he might be able to give me some tips and pointers and encouragement, because after all, he also was a devout Christian. Well, I appreciated the sentiment, but no, that was okay, because I didn't want to be defined by my blindness. I was, didn't want to be the blind lady. I wanted to be who I was, who happened to have poor vision. And I was also having a hard time just accepting the truth that this had actually happened to me because I thought maybe one day I'd wake up and it had gone away. It, it didn't. So eventually I relented and I met with Brian. Now I had a half hour lunch, so we agreed to meet on my lunchtime. And an hour and a half later, we were still talking. I know, I didn't get in trouble, which is kind of... Anyway, um, so... <laughs> Anywho, um, so we talked. He told me his story about life, and I thought, wow, you know, I'm really blessed because I have seen the faces of my children. And if I get close enough, I can still watch TV or watch a movie, and, you know, I can still see. Brian couldn't. But Brian also said he had never had that taken away from him. He didn't know what he was missing. So I guess both of us had something to learn from each other. He also told me stories um, and the stories of other people who were in similar situations. But he also gave me a Bible verse, and he told me just to take it, don't worry about it now, but someday maybe I would cling to it like so many others had, himself included. And it was Isaiah 42, 16. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. 
These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. Well, God is true to his word. The following October, I ended up losing my job when our company shut down the Champaign location suddenly and without any warning. And so here I was in my 40s, legally blind, no formal education or training of any, you know, worth anything, and unemployed. And what was I going to do? Who was going to hire me? I didn't know what to do. Well, while I was talking to Brian um, months before, he had given me some advice. He said I needed, first off, to stop wallowing. I needed to stop just laying in this pity party I was in. And I needed to get up, take some initiative, and do something. Well, I didn't know what to do, I told him. I told him that I felt paralyzed by all that was going on, that I felt like I was walking into a dark tunnel with no idea of where I was going, how I was going to get there, or what would be on the other side. And for lack of a better term, I told him I felt like I was flying blind. Well, he said, that's okay. He said, all you need to do is just take one step. That's it. Make one, take one step, and then God will light the way for the next step. And then when you're ready, you'll take that step, and so on and so forth. Well, this seemed a little time-consuming to me, but at any rate, <laughs> so I, I thought, well, all right, whatever. So then I lose my job, and I'm like, what am I going to do? So I thought about this step, because Brian had suggested that I call the Bureau of Blind Services in Champaign, a fantastic resource for those with visual impairment in our area. And eventually I did. So it took a lot of initiative, i got to tell you, just to pick up the phone and make that first phone call. But they acted like they were waiting for me to call. They knew what to say, what to ask, what I needed, what I didn't need. They just took care of me. And so I had taken the first step, and I let the rest fall into place. And then it was time to take another step, because I could not live the way I was living. I needed to make, make it better for myself, and I needed to make some changes, because I was unemployed. They had talked to me about going to school. I'm too old for that, and I'm blind. I can't do this. What would I do? And they said, don't worry about it. It'll come to you. So, again, I took the initiative. And I filled out the FAFSA, the online financial aid form. And then I procrastinated. I waited because I really wasn't totally committed to this school thing. But eventually I was. And I applied to school. And lo and behold, I was so excited when I got accepted to Parkland. And then someone told me everybody gets accepted at Parkland. <laughs> but still... It was, I had the moment where I was really excited, and I just clung to that. So in August of 2010, I walked into Parkland as a college student for the first time. And let me tell you, it was weird. I was the oldest one in my classes, and I was visually impaired. And every semester at the beginning, I'd have to go to every class, every teacher, and tell them, I'm visually impaired, I might need help with printed materials and tests, and blah, blah, blah. And they were all very, very helpful. Well, I'd settled on an information systems um, major, and I was going to work on computers. I thought this would be a great thing to do. It was geeky and fun and everything. I liked that. And then I didn't like it. It wasn't any fun. So I switched over to web design because then I could code, and that was still geeky, but then I also could design, and that was fun. And this was just really cool. Well, part of the uh, web design curriculum was to take some graphic design classes. Now, one of the classes I had... Um, the teacher was actually the program director for graphic design at Parkland. So the first day of class, I walk up and I say, 
hi, I'm Susan, and I'm legally blind, and so I might need some help with printed materials and things like that. Well, he looked at me like a deer in the headlights. He had no clue what to do with me. And I could imagine what was going through his head, things like, why have they put a blind woman in a visual arts class? <laughs> and, you know, what am I supposed to do with her? But probably more than likely, he was thinking, this will never work out. But that's okay. I thought, I just got to get through this class and I'll be done. But you know what? It did work out. I surprised him he, and I surprised myself. By the end of the semester, I had made a change in my major once again. And I told him I wanted to become a graphic designer. And he said, wonderful, which was great because that's, you don't get a lot of that from him. So anywho, I go and I, you know, take my classes. And... Along the way, I got to feeling sometimes, am I on the right path? You know, can an old lady who's blind get a good job as a graphic designer in Champaign, Illinois? Um, we have great graphic designers coming out of UI, or U of I and ISU, and they have bachelors. I was just going to have an associate. But, you know, I really felt like God had me on this path. I was very sure of that. And I knew that God was not going to put me on a path, ask me to walk all the way through it, be with me at the end to watch me crash and burn. I just knew that that's not the kind of God that I served and I loved. So I carried forward. This past May, I graduated with honors from the graphic design program at Parkland. And I was really excited. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, thank you. And, uh, but then the real trusting began because then I had to find a job. And this is where it was going to get scary. This is where, you know, the rubber hits the road and I've really got to do this. And I didn't have the comfort of school behind me anymore. So I started applying for every job that I was qualified for, which wasn't a lot. And then I got this great idea that I would start applying for jobs that I wasn't even qualified for. Because why not? Well, the worst that was going to happen is they don't call me. So I applied. Well, this one required... Um, a bachelor's degree, and I had an associate's degree. It also required five years of graphic design experience, and I had an associate's degree, and that's it. But I put my application in, submitted my digital portfolio and all that, and I got a call. The next day, they contacted me and wanted me to come in for an interview, and I was ecstatic. So I prepped, and I was all ready. The interview went great, and I sat and I waited. And then, because sometimes you have to sit and wait, but then... I w this, they called for a second interview. Oh my goodness, I was just shocked. When they called for the third, I was determined, I'm going to get this job. Well, they called on a Friday to offer me the job. I said yes, hung up the phone, and I cried. Because my God had not forsaken me. No, he was with me every step of the way. He gave me the courage to take steps. He gave me the courage to actually move forward. And he gave me the determination to finish. He gave me, cheer he cheered for me at my accomplishments. And that day that I walked into that job for the first time, he was by my side right there, cheering for me and rejoicing with me. Because my God did not forsake me and he walked with me all the way. Thank you. I get to be your minister. Uh, 
Yeah. Yay. Yay. Yay, God. Let me tell you what, um, let me tell you what Susan's professor has said about her. All right? She never misses any deadlines, always follows the instructions, pays attention to the details, and gives wonderful feedback during critiques. She's a problem solver. She communicates well. We know that. (laughs) She can preach. (laughs) And she strives to do her very best in terms of coming up with creative solutions. And then the professor said this, I never slowed down for her. I never gave her any extra help that I wouldn't give other students. And I graded her as if she had perfect vision. Hmm. Susan has raised the bar for all of us. If she can do it, you can do it. God through her. That's the doing it. He works through her. He can work through you. He wants to work through you. If she can do it, you can do it. She's raised the bar for all of us. And her life story um, touches on the word that I want us to consider from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Uh, If this is your first Sunday here at Windsor, we're so happy that you're here. And uh, very often, after a time of singing and celebration to the Lord, uh, we'll hear a faith story. And, um, and that story is connected to the lesson, the message that we, w- we want to learn from the Lord. And we're in a series uh, through the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And it's about wisdom. It's about pursuing wisdom. And according to the book of Proverbs, wisdom is the spiritual skill of knowing and doing the right thing. Wisdom, the spiritual skill of knowing and doing the right thing. Um, Wisdom is not the same as intelligence or academic merit. And wisdom is not morality either. It's not less than morality, but it's way more, way more. Wisdom is the spiritual skill from God that will help you grasp how life really works so that you can know and do what it is that God wants done. That's wisdom. And and today's wisdom from the book of Proverbs is this. It's on the chalkboard. Take initiative. Take initiative. Our 26th president, Teddy Roosevelt, Put it this way, get action, do things, be sane, create, act, take a place wherever you are and be somebody, get action. And then he would say this, bully for you. (laughs) Well, Proverbs has a word for Get action. Proverbs has a word for take initiative, and it is the word diligence. Diligence. The book of Proverbs originally came to us by way of the Hebrew language, and and in the Hebrew language, words are often word pictures, and the word picture of diligence is that of cutting, Uh, and more specifically, cutting of a trench, trenching, cutting, 
which implies clarifying, determining, deciding, and then acting on. So there's no turning back. You're going all in. You're being diligent. You take initiative. Now, um, listen to these verses that touch on diligence. I've got them up on the screen. Proverbs 12, 21. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Now, notice it doesn't say that the diligent will make slaves of the slothful. That's not what it says. It's it's saying that the slothful will enslave themselves because of their way of life. Proverbs 12, 24. Proverbs 12, 27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. So so the slothful person, they'll go out hunting and get their game, but they're just too lazy to cook it. And then Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The soul of the sluggard. It doesn't say the, the stomach of the sluggard. So there's something spiritual going on here. The soul is craving something, looking for something that'll never satisfy. But the soul of the diligent Oh, it's richly supplied. Be diligent. Get action. Take initiative. Take initiative. The word for the day is take initiative. Now, those of you who know me know that right about at this time in our message, I'll usually say something like this. I'll say, if you forget everything, I don't want you to forget this. This is the most important thing I want you to remember. If you forget anything else, all right? So then, if you forget anything, don't forget this. It's it's the big idea. The big idea. It's what I want you to remember if if you don't remember anything else. Our big idea. The big idea today, well, I was over at Jimmy John's having a sandwich. And the big idea came to me. Looked up at the wall. You know those little pithy sayings, right? Free smells. You know, your mother wants you to eat at Jimmy John's. Okay. And then I saw this sign. It's the big idea. Here it is. If you do the things you need to do when you need to do them, then someday you can do the things you want to do when you want to do them. There it is. That's diligence. Do the things you need to do when you need to do them. Then someday you can do the things you want to do when you want to do them. Diligence is doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done. So there's a time-sensitive nature to diligence, as we shall see in these Proverbs. Diligence is doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Taking initiative. Now, as you noticed in these verses in Proverbs that I just shared with you, uh, diligence has an enemy. Initiative has an adversary. There's a contest going on. Just as there is a contest throughout the book of Proverbs between wisdom and folly, so also in these verses there's a contest between 
diligence and sloth. Between initiative and the sluggard. The sluggard. And while Proverbs admires the disciplined life of those who take initiative, while Proverbs holds up and and has great admiration for the diligent, Proverbs absolutely has no patience whatsoever for lazy people. Proverbs is intolerant of the sluggard, laziness, sloth. This morning I want to answer three questions, and you can track them on your outline. The first question is simply this, what does laziness look like in the book of Proverbs? Well, we're going to see. We're going to see some snapshots of sloth. We're going to see the four faces of, of the lazy life. What does laziness look like in the book of Proverbs? And then uh, we're going we're gonna to ask the question, who, who can help with this? Who's most qualified to teach us about taking initiative? You'd be, you'll be surprised. And then finally, we'll, we'll consider the question, what's, what's really the heart of the matter in all of this? What's, what's the real issue here? So that's where we're going. What is, what's laziness look like? Who can help? And then what's the heart of the matter? What's the real issue here? All right? Now, before I get to question one, I, I just feel like I need to talk about this. Um, look, I know how a sermon like this can sound. Um, a sermon like this can be delivered and heard just in a really harsh way, right? You all come from the marketplace and you've had a hard week and you've put in your hours and then you come here on Sunday morning and you hear a preacher rant about, you know, work hard, take initiative, get action. I get that, okay? I know. I, I totally get that. And... Uh, and let me just say at the get-go, I, I mean, we're a congregation of hard workers, okay? I mean, God does not allow us to have a campus improvement project and then to be engaged in missions both locally and globally um, if we're struggling with laziness, okay? I mean, you are, are a congregation of hard workers. Please hear me say that, right? We need to listen to these verses. We need to just let these verses speak. Uh, Proverbs is a parenting manual. It is. I mean, the first nine chapters, uh, well, chapters one through seven, over and over we hear, my son, my son, my son, a father's pleading with his child. Here's how life works, and now here's how we need to live in light of how life works. And, And, you know, I can tell you, I know for a fact, children can be lazy. Ask my mother. (laughs) She she has stories and stories and stories about my brothers. (laughs) Dallas Willard Was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. A brilliant man, a brilliant man of God, solid Christian. Um, 
he said something that we need to hear. We need to hear. Listen. He said, grace is opposed to merit. Grace is opposed to merit. Grace is opposed to earning and the idea of making yourself uh, acceptable in the eyes of God based on your own work. Grace is opposed to merit. It is not opposed to effort. And so when, when we open the book of Proverbs, you know, we're reading it in a wrong way if we read it as if, if you don't do this, I won't love you, and the I being God. Okay. Now, here's how we need to read it. Because God loves us, because he redeems us, because he cares for us, because he loves us, here's how he wants us to live in this world until he comes to remake this world. Now, that's wisdom, knowing how life works and then living in the light of how life works. Now, does that make sense, church family? Say yes or no. Okay. Now, let's answer these questions in that context, all right? And question number one is this. What does laziness look like in the book of Proverbs? Well, turn to Proverbs chapter 26, verses 12 to 16. You'll find that on page 548 of your church Bibles. Page 548 in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 12 through 16. Proverbs 26, 12 to 16. I'm going to read these verses and I want you to pay attention to the four faces of sloth. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Verse 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Did you get the snapshots there? Four of them were. Four faces of sloth. Four stinging, sarcastic snapshots of the sluggard. One of the features of Hebrew poetry is sarcasm. And it drips in these verses. The first snapshot is Mr. Excuses. Mr. Excuses. Verse 13, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Really? A lion? On Main Street. Never heard that one before. But isn't it like lazy people to make excuses? Isn't it like lazy people to look for reasons to avoid doing what needs to be done? Oh, and what if there is? What if there is a lion? Tell the guy to pack a weapon when he leaves the house. Because in this life, when won't there be lions? In this life, when won't there be risks? In this life, when won't there be potential dangers? But this guy doesn't get it. He's just not going to get out of the house. And and notice there's a progression here. He's not only not going to get out of the house, he's not going to get out of bed. Mr. Excuses becomes snapshot number two, Mr. Sleepyhead, verse 14. 
as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard on his bed. He's just swiveling back and forth, back and forth, left side, right side, left side. There's a lot of motion, but there's no forward progress. And when the sluggard finally musters up the energy to to get out of bed, (laughs) he's too lazy to feed himself. Snapshot number three, Mr. Feedbag. Verse 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. Where's he? Can't even get enough energy to get the food out of the bowl into the mouth. Just buy him a feed bag. That'll fix it. The most serious snapshot, though, is the fourth snapshot. Shows up in verse 16. See, Mr. Mr. Excuses becomes Mr. Sleepyhead, becomes Mr. Feedbag, which then becomes Mr. Arrogant. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men. That's a, that's a figure of speech, meaning than everybody. He thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. The sluggard thinks he's the wise one and you're the fool. And you can't reason with a sluggard. He doesn't get it and he doesn't want to get it. There they are. Four snapshots, four pictures, four faces of sloth of laziness. Long time ago, the Los Angeles Times uh, told about a guy who went back to his house where he used to live when he grew up. You know, it's sentimental, hadn't been there for over 20 years. He knocks on the door, tells the owners who he is. They actually let him in the house. Well, come see what it looks like. You can see how it's changed. He gets up into the attic where to Everyone's surprised. He finds an old jacket of his. He tries it on. He takes it. Sticks his hand in the pocket, and there's a, there's a little receipt. There's a little card. It's a little receipt. It's for a shoe repair shop. Before he had moved, he had, he had taken his shoes to the shoe repair store, and he just had never picked them up. So on a whim, he decides to go back to this shoe repair shop, And just to be funny, he takes the receipt, he puts it on the counter, and he says to the guy behind the desk, are my shoes ready? (laughs) The guy takes the receipt, he goes back to the workroom for a minute, and he comes back to the counter and he says, come back a week from Thursday. (laughs) That's, there it is. That's the sluggard. That's how a sluggard thinks. Come back a week from Thursday. Come back a week from Thursday. Because a week from Thursday, I'll, I'll be waking up earlier. A week from Thursday, I'll stop wasting so much time. A week from Thursday, I'll get a handle on my homework. A week from Thursday, I'll stumble onto the job of my dreams. A week from Thursday, I'll quit craving another drink. A week from Thursday, I'll start helping the poor. A week from Thursday. A, a week from Thursday, my boss will finally notice me. A week from Thursday, my marriage will transform itself. A week from Thursday, my kids will stop getting into trouble. My metabolism will increase and the fat will just melt away a week from Thursday. A week from Thursday, the perfect spouse will float into my life. A week from Thursday, the credit card companies will lose my records. A week from Thursday. Are you sure? Where have you seen that? Last I checked here in Illinois, 
the crops don't plant themselves. But that kind of gets lost in the life of the sluggard. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4 says, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. And recall that in Israel, autumn was the time to plant. (laughs) Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4, "The, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. And last I checked, the crops don't harvest themselves either. And so, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5, he who gathers in summer, and that's when they did it in Israel, is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest, see the time-sensitive nature? He who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. There it is. Laziness. They, They just don't do what needs to be done when it's time to do it. That's the lazy one. Is there any help? Who can help? Who can make a difference in the life of this lazy one? Well, surprisingly, Proverbs chapter 6 tells us who. Flip over to Proverbs chapter 6. It's a little poem, verses 6 through 11. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, it's on page 531 in your church Bibles, page 531. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11 grants us admission into an elite academy of faculty initiators. An elite league of diligent, industrious, hardworking creatures. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11 introduce us to the Ant Academy. The Ant Academy. Go to the Ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Proverbs tells us, Proverbs tells a five foot eight, 150 pound human being to stoop down and learn from a teacher a quarter of an inch long and topping out at the scales at less than an ounce. This walking, talking human being with a brain bigger than the whole anthill must bend down and learn from the lowly ant. The irony is powerful, and yet the lessons must not be missed. The ant teaches three important lessons about taking initiative. Lesson number one, the ant needs no supervision. Nobody's looking over the ant's shoulder. The ant does not require the bureaucracy of King Solomon's court, chief, officer, ruler. A bureaucracy, a structure intended to promote achievement, but is somehow lost in the life of the sluggard. The ant succeeds with no oversight, needs no supervision, self-initiates. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is this. The ant understands opportunity. The ant wears a watch. The ant can tell time. The ant knows what season it is. And the ant knows what needs to be done in that limited window of opportunity to prepare for the next season. And the ant knows that if you don't take advantage of that 
small window of opportunity and that window closes, it can close for good. And the third lesson is this. If an ant can do it, you can do it. Change is possible. Proverbs says, consider her ways and be wise. If an ant can do it, you can do it. But you have to want to do it. The teacher wants it more than the student. It's not going to work. It's not. You've got to get out of denial. You've got to. And that's what's going on in verse 10. It's just a little slumber. It's just a little sleep. It's just a little folding of the hands. To which verse 11 replies, You may call it little, but while your eyes are shut and your hands are folded, poverty will deprive you of all you have. And your cravings will rob you at gunpoint. Ironically, the sluggard is both perpetrator and victim. The thing that he thought was so little turned out to be not so little at all. Hugh Hewitt uh, has written a very insightful book called In But Not Of. In But Not Of. And in that book, he tells about a French writer uh, who wrote about a retired colonel on the farm. A retired colonel on the farm. Had a good career. Made it to colonel. Retired out in the country, but he really wanted to be general. He really wanted to be general. And the French writer says this. If I could have examined his life, if I could have gone back and just followed him around, I would find some little thing that the colonel neglected to do. That, in fact, he did not want to do. And based on that, I could prove to him that he really didn't want to be a general. That is, he didn't want to be a general badly enough. You know, as I think about my life, um, I don't know if I'm vulnerable to just becoming a full-fledged slug Okay. But I wouldn't mind dabbling in it. See. Um, I, I, think, I think I'm vulnerable to what one author has called selective sluggardliness. Selective sluggardliness. It's about those who are selectively lazy. Those who have little pockets in their lives where laziness reigns. It, it's the student who succeeds athletically and socially but fails to take initiative academically. It's the dad who excels at work and shoots a four handicap at golf but fails to take initiative to the emotional needs of his family. It's the mom who pours herself out on the job and, and the home front, but fails to take initiative in her walk with God. It's the highly relational men and women who fill their time with people, but fail to take initiative to tend the soil of their inner lives. They, they never look deeply at the emotional or psychological realities that drive their behaviors and affect their goals and shape their relationships. They don't know how to be by themselves. They don't. 
It's those who overspend and undersave and then swear on a stack of Bibles that they're going to go on a budget a week from Thursday, but a week from Thursday never comes. And it's church members who say on Sunday that they, they want a deeper commitment with God, but come Monday morning, they're back to their casual Christianity. And it's the leader who knows how to cast a vision and knows how to recruit followers and know how to deploy resources, but they neglect their body, they neglect their diet, they neglect their health. And what makes selective sluggardliness so lethal is that if the other areas of our lives look good, then we can convince ourselves all day long that we deserve to be left off the hook. We, we think to ourselves, we, we say all day long, well, I'm, you know, I'm taking initiative nine out of ten times, so you know, is it that good enough? Well, yeah, it is, unless the tenth one kills you. And if that happens, if that happens, then it not only affects you, but it affects others. And this is where we move to the heart of the matter, the third question. Here's why it's so important to take initiative. It's another little poem. It's in Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 32. It's on page 546 of your church Bibles. Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 32 says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. And then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. And if you'll just keep reading to 33 and 34, you'll notice that those two verses are virtually identical to what we read in Proverbs chapter 6, right? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Here's the heart of the matter. Look at the words field and vineyard. You see that? What's that? Field and vineyard. What is that? That's this guy's home. It's not his man cave. It's not his bachelor pad. It's where his family lives. This guy's not taking care of the people in his life. He's got potential. He's got gifts. He's got capital. He's got tools. He's got resources. What does he lack? I'll tell you what he lacks. He lacks love. And that's the heart of the matter. Laziness is a lack of love. Laziness resists the demands of love. Almost every time Proverbs talks about laziness, Proverbs does this in a community context. So it's time to harvest. You cannot harvest by yourself. You need help. There are people depending upon this guy to come through, and he just won't come through. He won't leave the house. He won't get out of bed. He won't feed himself. He won't take responsibility. He won't take initiative. And because he won't feed himself, how can he possibly feed others? Others are depending on your diligence. Which is why Proverbs chapter 31, verse 27, describes the noble woman in this way. Proverbs 
31, 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Church family laziness is never an individual issue. It always affects others. It's a community issue. How many of you have been in study groups at school and it becomes clear that one person just isn't pulling their fair share? How many of you have been in work groups and after the assignments have been made and the deadline set, one of the persons just isn't around? They're not helping. They're an empty suit. How many have come from families where the parents have acted more like children, causing the children to act more like parents? And, and yeah, you know, it can happen in a local church too. God's given us gifts to serve, and He's given us abilities to meet needs with love. And, you know, so our, our nursery needs dedicated parents, and our children need mentors and teachers, and our students need coaches. This is, a, this is a vineyard. This is a working farm. One of us affects all of us, really. Picture a husband and wife. You know, they've been married for years. They love each other. One night, one of them says something that triggers an argument, and then they both head off to opposite corners of the house. Now what? Now what? We'll both know what needs doing. Both of them know. They need to make peace, and making peace takes initiative. But it's more than just mustering up the energy to walk across the room and say the words that are so hard to say. It's, you know, it's that this has been the same weary version of the same fight they've been fighting for years, and it just doesn't feel like they're getting any closer to fixing it or resolving it. So what's the point of going through the motions of apologizing one more time? You know, what's the point of it all? Do they want the relationship? Well, yeah, they do. But do they want to do what needs to be done to be in that relationship? Do they want to honor the claims that marriage has on each of them? Do they want to surrender their anger and give up their insistence on seeing the world only from their particular set of lenses? Do they want to learn unselfish authenticity in the daily routine of living together where it's not just your life and my life anymore. It's our life. It's us. It's us. Sometimes our relationships feel euphoric and energizing. And other times, they're tedious, routine, and just plain, flat, hard work. But taking initiative requires that we reorder our priorities. And taking initiative compels us to compromise on our individualistic plans. And taking initiative insists on sacrifice. Taking initiative does what needs doing to meet the demands of love. There it is. There it is. Taking initiative does what needs doing to meet the demands of love. And laziness is unwilling to do that. 
Laziness is unwilling to sacrifice. Laziness refuses the demands of love. Laziness resists doing day after day after day whatever it is to keep love strong. And that decision affects other people. Diligence affects others. Laziness affects others. Diligence. Doing what needs to be done when it needs doing. Church family, what is the next wise thing that you need to do right now? What is it? What needs your initiative right now? Without hesitation, without any delay whatsoever, before sunset today. What is that? I'd like the band to come up now. And while they're coming up, I'd like for us to think about, you know, the areas where God is prompting us to take initiative. Is it peacemaking? Is it a peacemaking issue? Maybe it's an unfinished task. Maybe it's a simple unfinished task. You know, what unmade beds just need to be taken care of today? Is it a budgeting issue? Is it a health issue? Well, I'll start tomorrow. No, go today. Take a walk today. Start today. Do it now. Get action. Some of you have been thinking about missions trips. You know? How about today? There is an information meeting um, right after second service. We've got little brochures on your chairs that explain our missions trips for 2015. And get action. Take initiative For some of you spiritually, the very next step for you is baptism. And so on October the 19th, two weeks from today, at the Y, 6 p.m., Baptism Sunday. It's time. What are you waiting for? Let's go. Get action. Take initiative. Listen, God has not canceled the Sabbath, all right? He's not canceled the Sabbath. And and these verses are not instructing us toward a more frantic, frenzied, hurried life. Hurry is an attitude more than anything else. And diligence is not hurry. Diligence is doing what needs doing when it's time to do it. So take initiative. Grace is opposed to merit, but it's not opposed to effort. The merit has been accomplished by our king. The earning has been done by Jesus, who is the epitome of taking initiative. We can take initiative because he has first taken initiative. He already has. We love because he first loved us. He who is love met the demands of love, his own demands. He took initiative to redeem us. He came as a sin sacrifice for your sin and my sin. And he made forgiveness available by grace through faith. And Dallas Willard said, anyone, anyone who really gets God's grace will be set on fire. And that will enable you to take initiative. Amen.